Welcome to another episode of Block Street's Around the Block podcast. I'm your host, Elaine Ramirez, and I'm a journalist covering startups, cryptocurrency, and blockchain for Bloomberg and Forbes. Around the Block is a series of conversations with thought leaders from around the space. On this episode, I speak with Daniel Jeffries. He's a writer, not only of dystopian sci-fi, but also on the decentralized world of blockchain. This was our interview from the Voice of Blockchain conference recently hosted by the Chicago Blockchain Project. We talk about how he differentiated himself from other writers in the blockchain space when he started years ago, how distribution at the point of creation will be key for the wider adoption of cryptocurrencies, and how the community will one day create a killer app without even realizing it. It's a great episode, but before we get into that, if you haven't already, Head over to the Block Street Twitter account and let us know who you think we should have on next. That's at Block Street HQ. You can also find it in the show notes. And for one final note, if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It'll really help the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Daniel Jeffries. Thanks for having me on. So before we kick it off, could you tell us a bit about your long, long journey with blockchain? Uh, so I was an engineer for 20 years, and I started to get into Bitcoin like everyone else. I was told by a friend I have to check it out, and I thought, God, that's some total bullshit. It's magic internet money, and only idiots would like this. And then, of course, you start to dive in further and further. So I wrote my first article for Bitcoin Magazine in 2014. A young gentleman named Vitalik Buterin was talking about a little idea he had called Ethereum on the writer Skype channel with about 30 of us. Continued from then and lost a bunch of money in Mt. Gox. So there was a bit of a winter uh, where I didn't pay as much attention to it. And then when I came back to it, I started writing about it specifically on my blog on Medium, which is uh, medium.com slash at dan.jeffries. And uh, that's where I started to write about it from a more futuristic standpoint. And I thought everyone was kind of writing about it in that way. And then I realized that very few people were thinking about the implications of the technology, what it could do, or they were just iterating on what Satoshi had already done and not really thinking about all the shards of a thousand other ideas that were indicated in the paper but never elucidated. So how did you even get these, these ideas for what blockchain might be in 20 years? So I've been a sci-fi author for a number of years. And so for me, it was easy to kind of think about all the implications of things. I think a lot of people focus only on the current iterations of the technology, and they don't understand the categories of the technology. So a category of technology is home video recording, whereas Betamax, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, DVR are iterations. And so the average person really struggles with seeing the future because they focused on an iteration and they go, oh, well, Betamax is only, can't record two hours and it's kind of grainy and they just indefinitely project it into the future with no change. And they don't realize that engineers are working on it and trying to solve those problems and that each iteration changes it. So the iterations fail, but the categories don't fail. In fact, I have not been able to find any category of technology that has actually failed. And I've thought about it a lot. And I often challenge people to try to think of a category that failed, like a steam engine or the printing press or you know, the internet, any of these types of things that had various iterations that they went through, 
and see if you can find a category that failed. And I have not been able to do it as of yet. Mm -hmm. And do you view blockchain as an iteration of a new technology or a whole category? Blockchain itself is definitively an iteration of decentralized consensus technology. So decentralized consensus technology, in my mind, is a way for friends, enemies, and frenemies to define a state of reality at a point in time. It's how we come to a consensus on what the state of a business is, or where all the money is in the world, or what the votes are in a particular system. And blockchain is most definitively one of the first iterations, and it's basically the caveman's fire version of what I think this technology becomes over the next 50 or 100 years. It's really like the Model T. And in fact, using the term blockchain limits our ability to have an understanding of all the other things the technology can do. It's really only around eight, eight or nine years, and people are very, very impatient. And they have bought into this idea, which I think was popularized by Wired in the 90s, that technology moves at the speed of light and it's always changing, and it's not really. It's, you know, we had pagers and then we had flip phones and then we had a smartphone and they're used to getting a new smartphone every year but it's much easier to have a new version with a smaller processor and a better screen than it is to invent an entire category and that takes a long time and I think that this technology takes decades if not you know, 50 or 100 years to play out very effectively. So before we get into your predictions what was it way back when that made you so passionate about this new I think the idea that we could print and potentially distribute money without a centralized power and that we could make that money programmable, money itself is frozen concentrated power. And if you know anything about the history of money, there was always local currencies or people would trade with each other, but it was very hard to say, well, five pigs are equal to three bales of hay, right? We, we, so we're always trying to negotiate. And so coming up with a stable form of currency was what many local communities did. And they might trade uh, salt or pepper for a period of time, whatever was valuable to them. But eventually the sort of central powers would come in, a king or a queen, they'd take over, uh, they'd kill everyone, and they would create a new currency and say, this is the only one. They'd pay their soldiers in it. And then they would tell the merchants that they have to accept that currency and that they have to pay their taxes in it. And if they didn't, they would send the soldiers there to kill them or take the money. And so that's generally how centralized money kind of came to be. And as we've developed into stronger and stronger nation states, which is an anomaly, that money and that frozen concentrated power became concentrated in the hands of a lot less people. So the concept that we could potentially disrupt that and change the way that money is distributed in society again, to me seemed like the pendulum swinging back in the other direction. We'd gone too far in the area of centralization, and it offered the possibility of us to go back in another direction where we have more control over our lives. So let's talk about how blockchain can make wrong. <coughs> that right. sounds interesting. So you think that it can be a tool for authoritarians? I guess we've already seen this happening in Venezuela. What are, what are your ideas about how this will happen? So I don't want to give the bad guys too many ideas, but I've put a number of them out there. <laughs> think about the fact that most people don't know this, but. Uh, IBM built punch cards to track the Jews during the Holocaust. So punch cards were obviously uh, early forms of digital technology. The early programs were uh, all built on punch cards. 
And we've started to see things in a, a dystopian nature, a sort of black mirror nature in China where they have barcodes on the doors of uh, the various people who live there. So that it has all of their meta information and how many people are live there and why. And so cloud-based technologies and centralized digital tracking technologies, IDs, digital rights management systems, we're already starting to see these things come to pass, but they're very hard to scale. And we know that when blockchains and cryptocurrency and decentralized consensus reaches a point where it's able to blow past kind of visa level transactions and today's most distributed databases, that it'll most likely be these private chains that are used to put the boot on the face of everyone in the world if we're not careful. So my sense of it is that the decentralized versions of these things, the open democratic ones, the open source versions, have to boot up a parallel economic operating system for the planet. In other words, they need to quickly develop their infrastructure, develop killer applications that the average person uses without needing to care about privacy and security. It's just gifted to them. Those applications need to be indistinguishable from the ones that they already use, plus offer additional benefits. And then that will start to bring in sort of the large corporations and money and all those things. And then that acts as a firewall between the forces that would try to stop it. In this particular era right now, it's fairly easy to stamp out. And in fact, what we saw in Venezuela is whenever there was an energy spike, the military would move in and steal all the Bitcoin miners. So, and I've talked about that in, in my articles that the proof of work is maybe one of the most disastrous and easy to combat things in the world. It would not be hard for every government in the world to simply move in and seize most of the major Bitcoin farms or just simply manufacture their own ASICs and never uh, release them to the public. So we need to get much smarter about these types of protocols. As cryptocurrencies get more and more powerful, I expect to see more and more uh, centralized nation-state level attacks at the protocol level. Nation-state level attacks, okay, that's intense. Let's back up, what, what is a parallel operating system? How would it work? So a parallel economic operating system is essentially really no different than you building a series of new technologies. Imagine you've got blockchain and cryptocurrency and decentralized consensus functioning at early internet levels. And on that, you now actually have a ton of real working applications. We're not talking about MetaMask and other crap that nobody else can use, right? Think about the way these apps work now. It's really terrible. And I've said this a million times. Nobody is going to go to an exchange, sign up for the exchange, get KYC'd, wired in money, buy some cryptocurrency, set up two-factor authentication, download this cryptocurrency, download an application, transfer the money into it, do something. Try walking your mom through buying cryptocurrency. If you can do it in less than two weeks, you're a genius. Mm -hmm. And the, the, to think that the average person will do this is insane. So the applications have to be something where we bypass the fiat system altogether. I've talked a lot about the gamification of money and distribution of money. I should just be using a decentralized version of WeChat and I'm sending cat stickers to my friends and family and, you know, uh, you know, girlfriend or whatever. And, and then all of a sudden I get this elite cat sticker and I'm like, oh my gosh, where did this come? Oh, look, I have a blinky light in the corner. Oh, what is that? And I click it. Oh, I've got all these like thousand reward coins. What the hell can I do with these? Oh, look, there's a marketplace for these like paid cat stickers and all of these other things. And it's almost like a Starbucks reward coin that's universal. Uh -huh. So this type of thing, if we're able to distribute the money, in a way that bypasses the fiat system where I'm never buying it. And 10 or 20 or 30 types of applications start piggybacking off of that instead of it just being siloed. Now I really have a currency that's useful that I didn't have to buy myself. 
that I'm using. And it's not just an airdrop like you see with something like Bat where they're like, hey, I just gave you a bunch of stuff. But I really have no incentive to send it to YouTube. Screw YouTube. I'm going to hold on to my bat. What they need to create is an entire ecosystem of people who are selling stuff, the developers, the end user application. They have to create the desire for that money to move. It's really crypto economic design that gets us to that place. But once you have that, you have this whole architecture of people just doing things within that space that they're not doing through PayPal or Venmo or the traditional banking system. And then all of a sudden that starts to have gravity and it starts to have a root in reality and people start to use it more and more and then other businesses start to look at it. Think about the early days of the internet. To Jeff Bezos, why are you going to sell books on the internet? That's ridiculous. We got all these brick and mortar stores. But eventually at some point in time, the pioneers are there, they build something that's useful. The people who are less innovative, eventually they come along. They see a good business model and they want to be a part of it. But that's okay. The early innovators now look at it as like, oh, you're sort of jumping on the bandwagon. That is what we want. We want a bunch of people who don't have the visionary capacity right now to come on and understand it as a good business so that when they start to bring all that money, then they start to bring lobbying power, the power to change laws. Think about something like how the Kickstarter came in. You know, the SEC says, oh, we can't, we can't change the rules. Bullshit, you can't change the rules. They changed the rules about accredited investors specifically for Kickstarter. And they, they said they, they, the average person can donate a certain amount of money to a cause. So this is nonsense that we can't update the rules a long time, but that only happens when there's significant economic power behind it. And that is really what we need because then it functions in a completely different way than the centralized system that we have now where we have a bunch of choke points. Mm -hmm. And on the topic of um, these rewards coins, do you think people are, would be more likely to use that than they would ever buy? Bitcoin or Ethereum directly? I think that a lot of the different currencies will exist for different purposes. And a lot of people have a very religious view of, of their particular cryptocurrency. Well, it can only be deflationary. It can only be slightly inflationary. It can only rise in value or it can only be a stable coin. The answer is it's going to be all of those. And if you look at all the different types of asset classes we have in the world, cryptocurrencies will come to mirror them. You'll have things that are investment vehicles. You'll have things that are stable. You'll have things that are for spending. You'll have things for rewards. In my mind, yes, because what I'm talking about is the distribution of a coin. So when a rewards coin is just firing out and there's 100 popular applications, imagine that you have a decentralized Instagram that comes out of nowhere, a decentralized WeChat, applications that millions or tens of millions of people are using, and there's just a mobile reward coin that's going out to them that they're not even really thinking about. They're not crypto enthusiasts. They're not trying to change the world. They're not worried about privacy and security. They never even heard of it. And so my sense is that you have to build these applications in a way that it's almost like stealth gamification. It's a way that you're just gifting privacy and security into the hands of everyone, but they're just using it like a normal application. They've got their decentralized Instagram or whatever the future killer app is, and they're getting these reward coins, and it's basically free money to them, and there's an ecosystem of things that they can buy with it. Like the vendors have to be there. They have to be selling something useful only in that in that currency. And some of them will be smart enough to say, oh, I can take this out and trade it on an exchange and get fiat or whatever it is I want for it. But that type of thing, if you concentrate on the movement of the money, the application of the money, rather than the creation of the money, which is what everyone's done now, yes, I think it stands the possibility of being much more popular than any of the current cryptos that we have today. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's so difficult for people to acquire, buy yeah. Bitcoin. We still, the fiat is still the choke point. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. It's because I think Satoshi figured out how to 
print money without a centralized power, but he used the exact same distribution methodology, which is top down. So we traded central bankers for unelected centralized miners, basically. And it then trickles down to the rest of us eventually when they sell it and it goes onto an exchange and then we buy it. But there's a huge breaking point. Like that, that's such a slow process for that money to trickle out and then us do useful things like I want to buy water with it or, or coffee or a t-shirt. By the time it gets to me, it's already so late in the, in the game. So what I'm talking about really is distributing money at the point of creation. And that really is historically unprecedented. It has never been done before in the history of man. And so that's why I think it has the potential to be tremendously revolutionary over the next 50 to 100 years. I actually think that it will completely remake society and, and how it works. And there's one other aspect of it that holds the potential to change society. And that is really what we're seeing is the beginning of triple entry accounting. Now, accounting seems to be a pretty boring subject, but it's actually the most interesting subject in the world. You would not be typing on this computer. I would not be drinking bottled water or Starbucks without accounting. So in the early days, you had single entry accounting, and that was during the feudal days, and that was one entry in a ledger. Johnny owes me 50 bucks. The only people you did business with were the kings and queens, and they had all of the money, and then you know 99% of the world was peasants. Your brother was your accountant because you needed to trust that guy, because if he wipes that one entry out, nobody knows about that 50 bucks. When the 1400s, Viennese traders needed to trade with people they didn't know. They had stuff going around the world, ships. So they invented the double entry accounting system, which was I have a debit, you have a credit. Now we both have a record of it. No one can say the transaction didn't exist if I decide to tear up mine. Now we've reached the limits of double entry accounting. So something like Enron is an example where they can cook the books and we have to trust that they haven't cooked the books. So if I come along and say, you know what, you look like a, a nice lady, I'm going to give you 1 million shares, and that's 10% of the shares of Enron. You actually have no idea whether I give you 10% of the shares. You don't have access to the books. In the triple entry accounting system, you would. You would still not have access to my books, but you would have a million shares. You'd be able to look at the third entry, which is the ledger, and say, there are 10 million shares that are issued. I have a million. I actually do have 10%. I objectively know that I have 10%. And so to me, that again is going to be a massive uptick in human complexity and our ability to have radical transparency. I just spoke with, for instance, a charity and they're already talking about, imagine if I'm donating programmable money, I'm donating crypto, and I'm able to see it moving throughout the entire ecosystem. It, $20 went to this small village, 10% went to administrative fees. So it's going to open up all kinds of areas of transparency. Mm -hmm. So in order to progress with uh, blockchain reaching critical mass, what kind of killer apps need to be built? So a killer app has got to be something like, just like when the browser came along for the internet. Right? Before the, the internet existed and people were using bulletin boards and sending messages and it was all kind of text-based and hard to use, only for techies. Right? You have the browser comes along and then the average person is able to just find these websites and read stuff and look at pictures. And they don't really need to know anything about all of the technology underneath it. It's, it's invisible to them. For me, the application is grandma level easy, right? An, an average person easy. There's no special knowledge required. Like right now, if crypto is chess, it's got to be checkers. It's got to be a thing that I just hit it, I download it, I'm doing a bunch of cool stuff, and it does more than the things I did in the past. If you think about a Kindle versus a traditional book, Kindle has a tremendous amount of advantages over a traditional book. For a long time, all the platforms that came along before it didn't. So a CD-ROM book was easy to scratch. 
couldn't lug around a giant computer on the subway, CRT screens that burned holes in your retinas, but it, but it had cool graphics and you could copy it. So it had the beginnings of a cool idea. Eventually the Kindle comes along. It's got insane battery life, super easy on the eyes with the e-ink. You've got Amazon's market power. So suddenly this whole digital book explosion happens at the same time, whereas it failed before. You can carry it around on the subway. It was sort of the perfect storm. So when a new technology comes along, it has to be the perfect storm where it allows us to do things we couldn't do in the past. Yeah, I can still drop that thing in the water and, and, it, and I lose my Kindle, but I can get a new one and download a thousand books. I can also carry around a thousand books with me and I can't throw a thousand books in my backpack. So again, it has to be something that is easy to use, ubiquitous, and enables things that you just can't do with the current technology. That is what the killer app will look like. So um, one of your predictions is that Bitcoin has um, a 50-50 shot at surviving. Why do you think that is? So because it's, it has first mover advantage, it's important, but it also has the disadvantage of being the first mover. So when you think about something like the ARPANET versus the internet, uh, ARPANET was a great idea, but it didn't fully scale to the levels that we wanted it to. And I think we're actually, with Bitcoin, we've made some of the same mistakes in computer science that we've already evolved beyond. In the early days, we would make it so that the protocol and the application were intrinsically wound up and not separated or abstracted. We're seeing the same thing with Bitcoin. The protocol is the same thing as the application. That makes it very difficult to upgrade and adapt and change. That is not sustainable over the long term. In other words, it's much more important for us to be able to abstract these things. A good example is something like XML on the internet. So in the early days, HTML wove everything in, the text and the graphics and how they're displayed. And they finally came up with XML and said, I can describe any type of data that I want, but I don't care what the data is. It's abstracted. So when de designers work on a website now, they work on the code, underlying code, and then the design is separate so that a designer doesn't have to know anything about the code underneath it. The designer can come in and drop graphics and text wherever, and the XML person can kind of set it to where it would be and make sure it's lined up correctly in, in every browser, et cetera. That type of abstraction is what happens when computer science develops over a long period of time. And at this point in time, we're still making a lot of the same mistakes that we have made in the early days of, of crafting any, any technology. So I think that Somebody comes along that builds a technology that blows past visa level transactions, is super fungible, it's totally private, it gets distributed in a beautiful way to an awesome application that everyone wants to use. And the question becomes like, do you still want the original? Do you want it really just as a hoarding currency or as a reserve currency? Maybe, but it also needs to be very successful in building its second layer like the Lightning Network, and that has to be good enough for us to be able to use it at a, a huge level, or we're never going to be able to use it to buy coffee, mm -hmm. right? And, and the question is, why would you, other than as a saving vehicle and the idea that it might go up over time? So it really has to develop as a platform. It still has most mind share. It still has first mover advantage. It's still the big daddy. Um, it still has some of the most brilliant coders. And so there is a good chance, again, 50-50, that it can continue to evolve. But over a long enough timeline, as people get their heads around what this technology can do. So going forward, what is your mission in this whole adventure? What is your mission in blockchain? <laughs> I don't know if I have a mission other than I like talking about it and thinking about it, and I'll do it as long as everyone is interested in hearing me. And so for me, I've invented a, a number of different projects, the Cicada project, and uh, initially people wanted to give me a lot of money for it, and coders were very interested in it, and I realized I don't want to spend 20 years building a technology. And so what I've started to do is what I call 
taking open source to the idea level, the data level. And so I just give away multi-million dollar ideas. I just give away any idea that I think of. And the idea is that if I do that, lots of different people will take the ideas on whatever level they can understand them and implement them. And that it'll be more competitive when lots of people are working on it, not just me. And so I like to do that. I like to kind of give away these things and people say that it's nuts. But it's, it is a calling card for me, and so I do get to do some consulting. And when I do do it, it's on a very specific level. I can say, you have to have some money, and you have to have people who've done stuff before, and you have to have a really cool idea, and you have to be willing to do some sci-fi level stuff, and it might have a high probability of failure. But that's awesome. Like, and I can come in for three or six months, and like, we can work through all the permutations, and then you guys can worry about the logistics, and I can go about writing and doing what I love to do, which is writing and talking and traveling and just being myself. That's really what I want to do. And so I want to, I like being a voice of this and I like telling people and getting people to think about this stuff in a unique way. And that is what I will continue to do. And after that, you know, I'll have done my job and uh, the industry will develop however it develops. You can keep writing sci-fi books. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, that's it. A big thanks to Daniel for taking the time to chat, and an even bigger thanks to all of you tuning in to this episode of Around the Block. As I said at the top of the show, if you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to the Block Street Twitter account, that's at BlockStreetHQ, for a ton of great content. And if you want to find me personally on Twitter, I'm at Elaine Gicha. Again, thanks for listening. I'll catch you on the next episode. This is Block Streets Around the Block, hosted by me, Elaine Ramirez. It was produced by Kenny Ferreira with research by Johan Yoon. Executive produced by Brian Lee and Ian Cho. This episode was recorded at the Voice of Blockchain conference in Chicago, Illinois. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you liked the show.